0: Hi everyone and welcome to Traditional Medicine with Shaman Flora. I'm your host, Ximena Garcia. This show is all about understanding yourself through plant medicine, as well as providing education and knowledge around this topic. I hope you guys love listening to this episode as much as I enjoy recording it. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Traditional Medicine with Shama Flora. Uh, today, we have a very, very special guest. She already had the chance to interview me earlier uh, in the year. Is that correct? I think it was early this year, right? Yeah. Yes, yeah interview me we had an incredible uh, chat on her podcast it was really amazing and when we talked and we met it was like two kindred souls coming together and realizing the power of supporting the cause of healing and expanding our knowledge and our words to the world uh, she is located in the UK is that correct
1: Yes,
0: in London. In London. Uh, So we're like in completely opposite sides of the world. Mm -hmm. So the way we came together, it was very interesting. It was through this woman that I was working with and and she kind of like reached out to a and then this whole thing happened. So it was kind of wonderful and after i got to to talk to agreda a little bit more and meet her and learn about her practices and how she came to where she is today i'm like i must have her in the podcast and interview her and learn more about her cuz guys everything is and i'm and i keep saying this in the, in the podcast, and I'm going to continue say this every single time, because even though I learned it a couple of years ago, just now it's starting to seep into my brain and it's everything has a spirit. And the reason why I brought Rita today is because when we were talking, she, she shared with me her journey and how she came to what she is today and I would love you to share that with our listeners and then navigate more of that. So with any further dues, uh, I would like to introduce She She's a wonderful soul, lovely, lovely woman. Um, she also um, invited me to her podcast. Is name is uh, Mindful of Everything, that I love that name. Because when we become mindful of everything, is a whole other level of consciousness. So I could talk forever, but this is not about me. This is about you. So agree why don't you come in and introduce yourself and, and share a little bit about you with our listeners?
1: First of all, thank you so much, Jimena, for that lovely introduction. It's very, very heart-touching. And thank you so much for holding the space for me. Um, it's quite... Different to be on the opposite side of the interview sort of process. Um, where I often am holding that space for people to share their stories and their experience and their wisdom. And so thank you so much for holding this space for me today. Um, so just to link back to the podcast, it's called Mindful of Everything, and it does sound as if it's mindful of everything, right? Being mindful when in fact it's mind full of everything. So mind, F-U-L-L. And that really, I think, signposts when I began to actually process um, all these different things that were happening in my life as a 19 year old. So I began the podcast in 2019, um, kind of just like with the concept of it being an open diary, in a sense of a teenager, slowly becoming an adult, um, you know, and entering that world where she soon will get to have her input um, in how the world kind of functions and and the systems that we live in. And I think 2019 for me was a very pivotal sort of year in that sense, where I became a vegan um, in 2019. I became quite involved in the environmental movement, so there were some... Extinction Rebellion uh, protests that I ended up joining with my sister. Um, So I was very much in that mainstream environmental movements or mindset. And I really thought that this is the way to go forward. Um, I was in my second year of doing a bachelor's in environmental science. So I was very much in that headspace of, you know, this is is the space I really want to be in. But as I progressed within that bachelor's um and i became a bit more aware of the root causes of the environmental issues that we're seeing uh, but also the social issues i realized that the very science driven perspective i had of the issues that we're experiencing particularly under the name of climate change has much more to do with the projection of our inner woundings, um, and ruptures and traumas and how people who are wounded, who are hurt are projecting that, um, within these systems, right? Particular leaders, they haven't gotten that space to understand that. And so when I had that sort of awakening, everything changed from then on. I realized that I needed to incorporate the humanity part of uh, the environmental movement. I think a lot of the time, the issue with natural sciences is that it really just focuses on the data and it can be really reductive in that sense, where statistics of, let's say, um, the amount of women being affected by a, a tsunami in a particular country or Poor people being at the forefront of the climate crises right those that statistics is basically it reduces to humanity it really dehumanizes people right it reduces people to just facts and statistics data that can be processed and I realized how dehumanizing that was within my third year um, of being in environment doing my environmental science studies. And so I realized, that okay, I need to go into doing a master's that really brings the social and the environment together, um, which are not separate at all. But that's, that's, yeah, I think that space is not being held in um, environmental science spaces, in natural science spaces. So um, I think the podcast for me was really just processing all these different thoughts and all these different awakenings that I've been having as a, as a 19 year old, which was quite difficult at that point. And I remember my friends at uni saying, wow, it's amazing what you're doing. I wouldn't even think about doing that. Or there's certain things that you say or the language that you use that I wouldn't even have thought of, um, using or their particular concepts that you're bringing to this space that I was not familiar with, or I didn't get a chance to remember those concepts. So it really just started off with me just kind of letting my thoughts flow. And then after a year of, uh, podcasting, I realized that, okay, I can see like a theme emerging, uh, from the discussions I'm having in this space, which was healing right? It was very healing centric work. So even if I'm talking about environmental injustice, uh, injustices, or just very science uh, focused environmental issues, I realized that I was still just heading towards understanding where did we go wrong in all of this? Um, where did we go wrong in seeing the world, uh, the dominance sort of narratives around nature being subordinate, to the human, the human being separate to the more than human nature, even just a category of nature in itself. The need for us to categorize nature is in itself problematic uh, because nature is us and we are nature and a lot of indigenous languages and knowledge systems, they don't have that separate category. So just... Kind of processing all these different things and bringing on people who could help me understand these uh, issues better within the lens of healing was very very powerful for me, and I got quite a lot of support in it with friends, family, but also just. Random people across the world approaching me to say, I really love your work, and I really would like to be part of this space. Um, I would really love to be interviewed by you. I would like to bring my perspective into the space. And I think that's such such a beautiful process. And I'm very, very happy to be part of that.
0: Beautiful. Wow. That was, that was, I have so many questions on what you said. And at the end, when you were talking, I was getting so many chills. Um, I want to point out a few things and then I have a question for you. Um, yesterday, someone brought to me, um, there is this thing called the Run Blue Book, I think, um, that is um, something that they did in the United States in the 1970s, I think, that they were like, identifying ufos and things like that so there is this youtube video called uh the run blue book interview with an alien i don't know if you've seen it
1: no i haven't Um,
0: okay so someone brought it to me yesterday i didn't finish watching it it's like 50 minutes long but i was watching something as i was watching the first few minutes they are asking questions to this alien and i don't know if it's real or not but the things that the alien was saying was very powerful they were asking this alien if he what is kind of a species he was. And he said that he was human, that he was actually an evolutionary version of us, of the future. And and he was talking about that, and he was talking about um about why he was here. And he was here because he came to see how do we live, because in his future, the our world was destroyed by nuclear weapons, and he was saying that the reason why we got destroyed was because it had to do with politics and economics, right? So as you're talking about climate change and you're talking about, you know, the traumas and the things that you saw, right, you're sharing with us that you started this career, in environmental studies. And then as you went through year one and then two, you kind of start seeing the correlation of climate change and the problem that is happening in the environment with us humans. And my question to you is, do you remember the moment in your journey, in your studies, when that clicked and you were like, oh my God, I see it now. I see it that in order to heal our Earth. We have to heal as
1: humans first. So, do you mind sharing that with us? I don't specifically remember a moment in time. I think it was definitely a build-up, right, a series of moments that build up to this uh, awakening. But I do remember in third year there was a assignment on policy, on policy work, and. It was on nature-based solutions, so how we can implement nature-based solutions into uh, UK environmental policy to reach net zero targets. So again, that was very science heavy in that sense, but just seeing the nature part of it was a way for me to realize that, oh, okay, actually, I think I would like to go down the policy route. And although environmental policy, again, as I mentioned, can be quite reductive and can be quite fixated on, okay, this is an environment, this is a damaged ecosystem or a series of a set of ecosystems that we need to uh, restore, which are damaged, and that often excludes the inclusion of um, local communities, for example, that doesn't look at multi-species justice, for example. It doesn't look at, okay, we need to represent non-humans who don't speak the way that we do. So all of these different concepts of justice are not really involved in nature-based solutions, at least how it is implemented in the UK. But I think just within that, I realised that policy work or at least the way that um, I formed that policy document, I try to include as much of the social as possible to actually emphasize that we do need the local community to be involved in conservation and restoration efforts. We do need their involvement. Otherwise, it becomes a very unethical practice that we are restoring someone's land, right? And this is the same issue that we see with indigenous peoples across the world. We are restoring the land of those who have... Experience and relationship with their land for them using generalized sort of restoration frameworks and thinking that because I'm a scientist because I'm a policymaker I have that responsibility over the local community over um, the more than human to make the de- uh, to make the decision on how to manage this land on how to restore it so I really try to incorporate that into that policy document that I was writing and I think that was that. Just writing that policy document made me realize that policy is is so human, like it involves the human as well, environmental policy. It should also involve the more than human, but you're seeing both of these being excluded in a very weird way because it is humans in the end implementing these policies. It is humans in the end um, coming up with these different frameworks on how to restore a degraded Um, area of land but in the in the in that process local um, knowledge and the knowledge of the more than human that do not communicate in the same way as us is completely being sidelined so I think within that policy document I yeah I realized that okay policy is definitely something I want to go that's the route I want to go down just realizing that yeah it has much more to do with how the local community is involved and that local community is not just limited to humans it's also it also includes more than human and through that i began to explore these different uh concepts i was coming up um but whilst doing my own research through bringing on people into the podcast and just doing solo episodes as well on on what i was experiencing but i definitely really credit um the convener of that module uh for allowing us to explore policy, environmental policy in the UK in such a way, um, so we definitely got that freedom, and yeah, I was very, very grateful. But for me, that was a really a big turning point in terms of how I can put my personal values um, into the academic space. I think a lot of academics are very afraid of just realizing or at least acknowledging that a lot of the things that we're talking about, uh, environmental restoration and conservation, it has to do a lot with the emotional and spiritual needs of beings, right? Because we're rebuilding our relationship to the land and you cannot approach um, restoration without acknowledging that this is relationship building. This is really listening to the land. This is really looking at the signs, picking up the signs that the land is giving you that, you know, yes, it is degraded. Um, And I think that relational work is pretty much um, neglected in natural sciences and even social sciences, Um, or at least it takes a very fragmented approach where a certain group of people will be focusing on local community involvement, and then the scientists will be focusing on uh, the environmental aspect, right? The mechanisms behind restoration, when in fact it needs to be a collaborative approach, it needs to be integrated. And so I think just realizing that, okay, I need to go down this policy route, help me and look at the different ways in which social and environmental policy can actually come together and, address our environmental issues in a much more holistic way than what we've been doing wow um
0: i love what you said you can restore without creating a relationship it's so powerful and you know it's interesting the last time that we spoke there was so much that came through but today that we're speaking there is like it's taking like a different direction and i love the direction that we're going to because it aligns so much with what I've been talking about a lot lately, I was talking, um, my my partner, he works at a, a Kada and a Kratom Lounge Lounge. And like I said earlier, I said I said that we have um, connection to spirit and that everything is a spirit, right? And and you know, the disconnection that we have towards nature. Right? Like, you know, I was watching just, just before I helped in, I was watching a YouTube video and I'm sorry, a TikTok video. And it was about this woman talking to a plant and she was talking to this plant and she was telling the plant is like, I don't know what to do with you. It's like, I gave you water and you do this. I don't give you water and you do this. And she's like having this a great, this, this hostile conversation with the plant. And I and I swipe right through it and I tell my partner, I can't handle this because I'm feeling like the plant. You know what I mean? Like I feel like she's talking to me, and I'm in my mind thinking, is like, do you understand that you're talking to a breathing conscious species? I mean, just because the plant cannot communicate the way that I do, just because it doesn't create words, it doesn't mean that it doesn't hear you and it doesn't understand you. And I think what you're talking about, about the disconnect that we as humans have towards nature, towards animals, towards insects, towards fish, I mean, towards everything that is living, that is not us, is massive. Massive, massive. And if we can actually come to terms that they are as alive and that they feel as much as we do we wouldn't interact with it the way that we do today
1: yeah it'll be very different yeah absolutely and that's where the work in decolonizing the spirit or decolonizing um ontologies or decolonizing language and uh knowledge really come into it um so really just so for me a big part of decolonizing my mind and my body and my spirit has been taking inspiration um, from the indigenous environmental movements that have uh, researched I think across the world Um, where this you know as I mentioned before this idea that nature is not separate uh, the more than human is not separate to humanity is so essential and I think what you mentioned about um, talking to the plants in such a hostile way that happens when you see that species as subordinate where you see that species as not having the emotional intelligence as humans or mammals have um, as seeing that species as non-sentient so if you were to chop that plant you know it it will not be the same as cutting a limb of another mammal right. Mm. At least that's the mindset of people. Oh, wow. <laughs> Sorry, I don't wanna <laughs> no, talk with you. Great.
0: I know I think it's, it's a great analogy because it is true. It yeah. is true, you know. Uh, when we're in the jungle and this is something that one of my teachers taught me, my teacher taught me right when I was little, I will I grew up in Colombia, as you know, and I will and there is so much greenery, right? And I had this habit of like pulling leaves from the the bushes and then fold them and then cut them with my nails and do like weird things with that right (laughs) growing up as a little girl and then later in my journey someone taught me it's like do not pluck anything from the ground without asking for permission Mm, yeah and I was like what and it was like yeah it's like go to a plant and ask the plant may I and if they would let you you don't even have to pull hard. The plan will give it to you. It will be as simple as just like, here you go. But if they don't want you to pull it, it will be hard for you to pull. That means that you shouldn't pull. So, you know, it's so true. It's like, if someone comes to me and is like, Hey, can I plug a hair of your head? You know, I will be like, maybe, but does someone like randomly just go and pull my hair, I mean, I'll be like, Hey, yo, what's going on? (laughs) So I really like the analogy. It was a great analogy. Thank you for that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no worries. And, you know, sometimes it might seem as if we're being quite human centric by having to think, Oh, if someone was to do this to me, how would I feel? When instead it should just be how, how would this organism, this being feel right? We don't have to always bring ourselves into it, but I think it still is quite powerful to see it from our lens. Um, I think that's where empathy comes from, right? Um, empathy comes from lived experiences, from shared experiences. And I think that is powerful, but to start to shift away from seeing it from that human lens to actually just seeing, you know, this is a being, they have their own rights. They have their own emotions. They have their own journey. What will my um, interaction with them do to that, to that journey, um, and to their life and to their well-being? So I think it's good to start off by seeing it as you know how would how would a human being feel if I was to be doing this to them that I'm doing to that um, non-human animal species but then just shifting to thinking, well, this is a species in its own way, right? This is a being in its own way, and I have to respect that. And, yeah, that's when seeing the animacy in everyone and everything comes into it, and that literally just goes beyond sentience. I think the way Western science is starting to see that... Um, non-humans also have rights, they also deserve to be seen by the law, for example, is through the lens of sentience. So there's so many studies that um, are saying now that worms have sentience, that uh, particular insects have sentience, when in fact, I also think that that can be a bit reductive because then what about plants? How do you prove that? I don't think you can prove that with... um, traditional science techniques and methods i don't think you can prove that right the most that people can prove is that um plants uh, or the plant kingdom they have their own ways of communicating for example through mycelia but that's it so sentience in itself is again very human centric is very mammal centric so again just looking towards indigenous um Knowledge systems and ontologies. They see the mountains as alive. They see the air as alive, the water as alive. um Even the house that you're in, right, it's holding space for you to live and to thrive, essentially. And yeah, everything. Yeah. Every,
0: everything to them, everything is a spirit. Like there is no exactly egg, Like this table, this yes. mic, this yeah. pen, like mm-hmm. everything has a vibration, everything has a life. And, you know, Uh, You were saying a few things. One is like, you know, like every creature to have their own rights. I think that that would be a really interesting world that to move in if if we were to go to that place, right? For different types of plants and trees and bushes and insects and animals and everything to have our rights. To exist, and then I wonder—you know—the the whole world of uh, earth medicine, like ayahuasca and um, chacruna, and like all of this. Well, I mean, like like the the, the plants that apply to all of these medicines, like um, tobacco and tepescuite um, and cava. Like all of these plants that are starting to come out and play and get to know. I wonder if eventually someone up in this, you know, roles of environmental or whatever place it is, they get to work with these medicines, they can actually start understanding from that place, the consciousness of these plants, because, you know, people ask me questions about is like, well, how did someone know how to make ayahuasca? Right. Someone is like, okay, wh- like that was one question. Another question that someone asked me is like, okay, where was like the first ayahuasca I ever planted? Mm, right? Like where yeah. did the seed of ayahuasca came from? Right? Because it had to come from some- from somewhere, right? Um, so the first question, um uh, well, the first and the second question, the answer is the same. I ask, I asked the indigenous people about it, mm. and they said that it was a woman
1: wow this
0: was her answer the yeah. answer was it was the spirit of a woman mm. that came to the earth and planted herself and then turned
1: into the vine is this um related to the story of sky woman i don't know what is the story of sky woman so there's a beautiful book that is very close to my heart and i would say it's probably the, my most favorite book, uh, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Ball Kimmerer. Amazing, amazing book that I got to review as part of my master's study last year. Um, it was very, very exciting to actually go through it and pick out the key themes. But what the book actually starts off with the story of Skywoman and how she she comes down to the earth. And I think she does sort of plant the seeds of these different, um, key, I think herbs and, uh, sweet grass is one of them. So I think in the Potawatomi nation, I think, I think that's their name. Um, you can't sell sweet grass. You can only gift it. Because it is that holy, it is that special. And I think, yeah, Sky Woman, through that story, she came down pregnant with these seeds and she planted essentially herself into the earth. So that's the first thing that popped wow. up in my mind.
0: I mean, you know, probably, who knows, as you know, stories of uh, deities and things like that like come from like different traditions, but at the end they are all the same. But... That's what they told me. And they said that, you know, after she planted herself, then she became the vine. And then from that vine, then other vines were planted. And then, you know, I multiplied, but, you know, it's like, you know, and then, and then right, like, and then this plant where this vine comes, plants itself. And then how someone knows to use a leaf and a vine and then combine it, drink it and then go through this experience. You you know, you know this is one of the things and is that with everything, right? Like how did someone know that like for example, I was I was in the jungle and one of my clients got sick, right? He got sick. And he had a stomach ache. And I ask the locals every time I'm in the jungle. I ask the locals. It's like, hey, what's good for this, right? Because they use the jungle as medicine. So then my employee tells me, it's like, oh, it's like we're just going to boil the heart of the garlic, like the center of the garlic. We're just going to boil the heart of the garlic, with in hot water, and then we're going to add a Colgate. Colgate,
1: Colgate. Colgate.
0: <laughs> yeah, Colgate, Colgate. Okay. Colgate. And we're going to add Colgate to it. We're going to mix it and he's going to drink it. And that's going to make him feel better. And I'm like, no way, no way, no freaking way. And then they do the remedy. He drinks the remedy. He feels so good after the remedy that he asks for a second cup. Wow. Who in their <laughs> mind will think that doing garlic and Colgate will help you with an accept
1: stomach. I Col- wouldn't be able to. Yeah, Colgate the, the, in terms of the toothpaste?
0: Yeah, yeah, the actual wow. toothpaste. I know, <laughs> I know. It was like, it was, it was, you, you know, so I don't know how do these people get this disinformation, right? But as with everything, like there is all of these different plants in the jungle that we plant and we grow. And they all have different benefits, like physical be- benefits, right? For like arthritis or diabetes or... But so how does that someone knows to take this particular plant, boil it, drink it, and then heal something? And the only answer that I have is the plant communicates with you in a way that it teaches you these things. And if that is not sentient, then I don't know what that is. You know what I mean? Exactly.
1: So, yeah. yeah, just to bring in um Robin Wall Kimmerer's sort of idea around experimentation. So, she went through a journey of being a botanist um and really working in the very reductive as I mentioned before, right? Really reductive framework of ecology um and botany in the sense that plants were just given names. I think it was in Latin names that uh, we use in science and that's pretty much it. Um, And that's how you classify the plants. And obviously the plants are seen as objects of experimentation rather than actual beings uh, that we're building relationships with when we are conducting these experiments. And so when she uh, became a bit more aware of the language of um, the the nation that she's part of, I think, is Potawatomi um, nation. She she realized just how harmful um, scientific practices are, and she gave a very beautiful conceptualization of experimentation as being relationship building as being sitting down on the ground looking at the sweet grass and communicating with the sweet grass allowing the sweet grass Um, sweet grass has been given as a a very beautiful sort of extended metaphor throughout the book in the sense that literally with sweet grass you braid it um so one person holds one end of the of the bunch of sweet grass and the other person holds the other end and you braid it together singing and, um, laughing and putting your heads, uh, sort of foreheads touching together whilst doing it. It's a very beautiful, very intimate sort of process. And so when she was, so essentially just to give a bit of context, she was talking about how sweetgrass in many areas, I think in New York are, um, reducing, right. In, in terms of the, just the species in general, you're just seeing a, redu- a reduction of the abundance, right, of the species. But within areas where basket weavers, so basket makers of sweetgrass, like they use sweetgrass to make baskets, um, in those areas, the sweet grass is very abundant. And so she wanted to basically experiment and show that these basket makers have been able to maintain the sweetgrass in a very lovely way. And so she said at first she felt as if it's very odd to be experimenting on such a holy, um, and such a sacred plant. But then she just really reframed that experimentation as listening to the plant, as, as I said, sitting down on the ground and, Really being up close to the plant, asking for permission, as you mentioned. So, the, how do How did um, you know our ancestors, for example, know what plants to use and to pick those leaves and to boil them and to drink them? It was through experimentation, which involved asking permission from these species, asking um, if you know, can I can I experiment with? these fruits with these leaves that you've, uh, provided us. Um, and that way, like you said, the plant guides you through the process, but experimentation was just so key. And the way we've conceptualized experiments in, uh, conventional science and in Western science, it's just, okay, this is your subject and we're going to experiment on this subject, right? That's where animal testing comes into it as well. This is, this is, um, a rat or a, rabbit or whatever they experiment on a monkey and we're just going to experiment on it because their life is not as worthy as ours but the way our ancestors found out uh these remedies and these plant medicines was really just engaging with the land in a very intentional way that I'm not doing this to extract from you I'm doing this so that I can provide medicine to so many different um people right uh on this planet so I think that's that's very powerful, that conceptualization of experiment.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you said my favorite word, intention, right? I think that that's really important is what is your intention for communicating, for working, for doing all of these things? Like, what is your outcome? I was talking to my coach yesterday and we were having a conversation and and uh, about relationships and and I told her, it's like, I don't know what to do. I'm so confused. And then she asked me, I was like, what is what is your outcome? And I'm like, I was like, I don't know. And she's like, what is your it's like, that's why you don't know what to do because you don't know what is your outcome. And I think it goes back to a conversation that you and I had at the beginning is being intentional about everything that we do. And when it comes to working with these medicines or with just in just working with nature in general, I mean, I live in an area that is very holy and there is so many, there is so much nature around me. And then I work in the jungle and then there's another place and it's been teaching me so much of my relationship with the plants and with earth i was in a i, I went to this huge climb the other day and it was like a, an hour hike to get to the climb and you should see me walking and being very mindful of putting my hands on the trees it was it yeah. was because in the past i would just be like grabbing things and just walking and just right but when you're in the jungle you can't really do that cuz there is trees that have spikes like huge spikes. So you have to be very mindful of where you put your hands when you hike in the jungle. So that's a practice that now I'm bringing with me at home and and I was hiking and I was like I would like hey can I can I use you as as a support so yeah. I don't fall? Can I hold you? Can I hold your branch so that I don't I don't I don't, I don't fall, right? But not everybody has that practice, right? Like that's something that it comes with time, but I think it it goes back into like bringing that level of intention, even when we're hiking in nature, right? Um, And there was a story that you shared with me about intention from, uh, if you remember from Shiva and and his wife. So I would love for you to share that story because it's like so deep in my heart.
1: Yes, absolutely. And that's a story that I um, got to sort of take in as a teenager. Um, It's Mm -hmm. just one story that I actually tried to find that story on the internet. And I wasn't able to do that. It's just a very small part. So just to give a bit of context, a very beautiful tradition in um, Hinduism, and I think it's in every ancient sort of culture and uh, religion and belief system that you get to see is a lot of people, especially during festivals, will enact these mythological stories and these religious stories on stage for everyone to see. So people will literally be embodying the gods and the goddesses, right, to enact these stories. Um, And I personally think that's a very beautiful way of showing that the divine, um, the if you want to call it God or the universe, is within us. um, And we're not separate from that. So Indian sort of television companies have built from that. And so here we have period dramas. But in India, we also have mythological dramas or religious dramas where these stories are literally being commercialized in a way and um, presented right? As dramas. So as a child, the way I engaged with Hinduism and the way my mom sort of introduced it was through watching these dramas. So it was literally people enacting these religious stories um, in very beautiful ways to the point that when you think about a god, or when you think about the avatar of a god or goddess, their their sort of face comes into your head. That's how powerful it feels, right? And I think that's with any drama, but just to just to see that, like seeing that as like a religious drama that, you know, you're associating someone and as someone's personality and someone's body and mind and their face to, you know, to a god and goddess. I think that's very powerful. So that's where I actually found out um, this very beautiful sort of intentional practice that has stayed with me for years now. I think that drama came out around about, 2012 or 2013 and that's when I saw it so essentially it was Lord Shiv saying to uh, Goddess Parvati uh, so she'd come to him to learn from him but essentially it was so that she can build a relationship with him and essentially marry him but so she came to him as a student as to learn from him and so he said okay I'm ready to accept you after I think she she'd meditated for very long. Um, we call it the Bastia, which is a bit more deeper than meditation. It's literally sort of sitting in a cave or sitting in in a place that is um, within nature and staying within that uh, sort of position for very long, just sort of focusing on on yourself. And um, so it's a very deeper form of meditation in that sense. So after she'd done that. Um, she came to him and said, I want to learn from you. And he said, yes, that's fine, but you need to take a bath. You need to bathe yourself. Um, You need to cleanse yourself and prepare yourself to learn. So she went and she um, had a bath. So she washed her hair. And so in that drama, they show that she's had that bath and then she comes back and you can see her hair is wet and her body is still a bit glistening um, from, from the water And also because it's quite humid in India. So, you know, she she would be feeling quite warm in that sense. So you can see that she's had a bath and she comes to him. And she said, yes, I've had a a bath. I'm ready to learn. And he was like, no, you have not. You need to go and have a bath. And she's just standing there very confused because she's just had a bath. You can see her hair's wet and her body is still um, quite moist. And she's like, okay. I'll go and have another bath. Maybe I need to have multiple baths um, in order to be fully cleansed. So she goes and has another bath. And then she comes back and she says, I've had a bath. And he says to her, no, you have not. You have not had a bath. And so she's like, you know, she asks him, "What, what do you mean then? What do you mean by taking a bath? What do you mean by bathing yourself? And he's like, Until you do not feel every single water droplet uh, rolling off your body, as you uh, rub your hands and over your body to cleanse yourself, until you do not feel every single water droplet, you have not had a bath and therefore you are not ready to learn. You are not ready to engage in taking in all this wisdom. And that was just a very small scene within that drama. And that drama went on for a few years because there was so much um, mythology and so much uh, wisdom to unpack there. There were stories upon stories integrated with one another. I got to learn about so many different avatars of um, divine, the divine masculine and feminine that I didn't get to learn through, for example, reading religious uh, scriptures. But through that drama, it was just one scene. And I think that was the point where I would say I gained consciousness about intention. Like, this is intention. Taking a bath and feeling the water droplets roll off your body. And that does not mean standing in the shower and, you know, every single day feeling the water run off your body. <laughs> that that It doesn't mean you do that every single day, but just understanding that this water is is a medium for you to cleanse yourself. And every single droplet has a role to play in that act of cleansing is just so powerful. And that story has remained with me um, for as long as I I became aware of it. And and I remember telling you about it. And yeah, it's just when you asked, you know, um, are there any sort of intentional practices that you... Uh, sort of engage with, um, within the Hindu faith. And that's one story that just came up. I just found it so powerful and so beautiful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love the story and it stay with me and it still stays with me and it's like, uh, I love it. I love it. Well, agreed. Thank you so much. It was so fun having this time with you. There is so much that we unpacked and I love everything that we talk about. And uh, right before we close, I love asking my my uh, my guests um, to share something with our guests uh, with everything that we spoke. What what do you want to tell to our guests? Uh, what what um, invitation do you want to bring to them um, in terms of the topics that we talk to them? What can they do to to help the environment and in in all of this? Um, you know. The spirits that we kind of brought into the space, in their in their day to day,
1: what will be like your advice? I think the best sort of way in seeing how we are interconnected um, with all these different. Uh, beings and spirits around us is really getting on the body level. And that's something that I've been working on a lot. And it's something that I start every podcast episode with, right, a breathing exercise to really just ground us in that moment and to bring our attention to our bodies as we are choosing to be vulnerable with one another, talking about things that are quite sensitive. And I think that really just humanizes the process of talking through traumas and talking through healing work, which a lot of, I think, therapy and healing spaces in Western societies, you don't have that a lot of the time, or at least that's from my personal experience. So really just bringing yourself to that body level and realizing that the physical body is really the point where all of our bodies, so our mind body, our spiritual body, our emotional body, our ancestral body are coming together, right? Our physical body is the vessel that holds all of these different worlds and energies together, which is just so powerful. And when one of these worlds or one of these bodies are experiencing uh, discomfort or a rupture has occurred within the connections of these bodies. it emerges in your physical body right so you see that as migraines you see that as issues with your stomach or your gut health. you see that in so many different ways. so really becoming aware of the signs that your body is, is giving um, is really essential in this in this process and in this work. I think you mentioned outcome. Is, is a part of this. I think that there's an issue with focusing on outcome a lot of the time um, because we really just think, okay, we need to get to this outcome. We need to get to this target. And in that process, we don't get to hold space to just witness what we're experiencing, right? The fact that our, every single emotion that we experience is valid. So if we instead just focus on the journey rather than solely on the outcome of course outcome is is important but just focusing on that journey and really being kind to yourself um and allowing yourself to really be aware of how your body is reacting under certain situations and uh within certain environments um i think yeah that would that would just really be i think it would be easier for us to see where the ruptures are occurring within our different worlds so Yeah, that can be through meditation and through yoga and, um, through engaging respectfully in, with indigenous, uh, community leaders and indigenous knowledge, but that's also just sitting down and talking to one another, like we are today, um, allowing yourself to be vulnerable. Vulnerability for me is so essential. That's, that's something that I've been focusing on quite a lot, uh, recently, especially, I think at the start of this year until now being vulnerable is such a difficult thing, but it is also a very intimate thing. And that comes from really just allowing yourself to accept whatever you're feeling. If it's anger, if it's jealousy, if it's hate, if it's, um, sadness. So really focusing on the body and understanding the way that the body reacts within certain situations and, how the body reacts to certain practices, that's that's a way that you, I think, become a bit more intentional with your actions and the way they interact with the world.
0: Beautiful. Well, Greta, thank you so much. That was very, very beautiful. Thank you for that reminder. I think the body is really important and you said really key things. So thank you so much for having you today. It was such a pleasure. Um, I'm excited to see how this is going to plan out. And and then hopefully we'll have more of these sessions together, either on your podcast and on mine and and continue deeping our knowledge uh, of the relationship with the environment. So thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Jimena. It's always, always lovely to talk to you. And yeah, I'm really excited about the future ahead in terms of our collaborations. I've always loved engaging in these topics. And yeah, I I love being part of these spaces. So thank you so much.
0: Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much. So much gratitude and many blessings to you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to the show and tune into our next episode every Wednesday. You can find us on Instagram or join us, our Facebook group at Rainforest Healing Center. And lastly, please rate and review the show on our Apple podcast. This is the best way you can support us so we can get the show to more people just like you that want to learn about plant medicine.